0: All right, grab your Bibles. Open up to Romans chapter 14 and 15. If you don't have a Bible, grab one out of the seat in front of you. They are distributed in the chairs around you. If you don't have a Bible, you get to take that one home with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you, to equip you to read and study the Word of God on your own. Now, we're going to page 948 in uh, in our Bibles, Romans chapter 14. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a lengthy introduction this morning, so keep turning there and don't close it because we're coming back to it. This week, we are in week two of a three-week series. Uh, We're looking at our mission statement, walking in Christ as a community on mission. And and that mission statement encompasses the three key relationships of really being human, our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with the community around us, our neighbors, people that aren't part of our immediate community, but that we're loving um, outside of our immediate community. Last week, we took a look at what it means to walk in Christ, and we talked about how in Christ, essentially, we find everything that we truly desire, that everything we were actually wired for, and created for, is found in Christ primarily, and we um, are blessed as we uh, discover our identity in Christ. That's what we unpacked last week. This week, we're looking at what it means to do that as community. Here's the thing, you guys. When you become a believer in Jesus, it is not an isolated spiritual experience, it's a very popular idea in our culture today. In fact, it's almost unquestioned, this idea that your spiritual journey is a private journey. That's, that's kind of my private spiritual life, it's something I do on my own, something I may do around others and, and to some extent with others, but ultimately it's, it's an individual pursuit. And that is actually quite contrary uh, to what the Bible tells us about ourselves. When you become a believer in Jesus, you are joined, spiritually joined by the Spirit of God to uh, the community of believers, that you are actually spiritually, in a sense, wed to them. That's one of the metaphors used in the New Testament to describe us. We are the bride, singular, of Christ, right? We're called the church. Now, when we talk about going to church in our culture, what we usually mean is is going to a building, in our case, a bank, uh, right at a specific time for a specific event, and, and, and if you're really a church person, it means that you're kind of there every time the doors are open, right? And, and so that for a lot of people, you, you grew up that way. You were there Sunday morning, you were there Sunday night, you were there Tuesdays, you were there Thursdays. Every time the doors were open, why? Because you were a church person. Well, here's the thing. The word church in its original language in, in the Bible, in the Greek, ekklesia, literally means the called out people of God. The church is not the building, it's the people who inhabit the building. The church is not an event, right? A church is not a time slot. Church is the relationships that we have with other believers. We are the called out people of God. We are the church. So we don't go to church. We are the church. And one of the the ways we grow as community is realizing that we're not growing together by going to an event together, but we're growing in relationship with each other. Here's the thing. You can go to an event. You can be at church every time the doors are open and you can still be isolated. You can still be separated from other believers. You can still kind of be doing life on your own, kind of hiding the things you don't want people to know about and putting your resume out front so you always look good to people. That's not being the church. That's not knowing and being known. That's not growing in relationship. To, to grow as the church means to grow in relationships with people who are, um, are also followers of Jesus. It, it means using your gifts in service to others and letting others use their gifts in your service. It means knowing others and being known by others, like progressively becoming more and more transparent about who you are and what your struggles are and where you're growing and where you're happy and where you're sad. And it also means knowing people, like moving into relationship to the point that that you know them and you're supporting them. and, and, And when you're in community, man, your joys are more joyful and your pains are more tolerable. Why? Because you have people around you who know you and love you. And so you're loved and being loved. And some of you are like, dude, that just doesn't sound like me because I just don't like people, right? Um, I have that conversation regularly. People are like, you know, that's just, I just don't like people. Well, here's the thing. You're going to have to address that. <laughs> You're going to have to deal with that. First um, John 4.20 says this, You cannot love God whom you don't see if you don't learn to love your brother whom you do see. You cannot love God whom you don't see unless you learn to love your brother whom you do see. There's a quote in your bulletin by Wesley Hill that I absolutely love. It's quite profound. It says this, God's love for us is expressed and experienced mainly through the medium of human relationships. That seems so obvious it shouldn't need stating, but it's actually quite profound. Think about it. How can you love a God who you don't see? So you can learn about God's love for you You can grow in your devotional life where you are meditating on the truths of the Scripture and and you're starting to sense the love of God. But how do you profoundly, and in fact, reality, experience love? It's in human relationships. God communicates His love for us in the love of His people. We need to be growing in relationships with people if we're going to be growing in our relationship with Christ. That's the bottom line. Some of you are wondering if it's worth it this whole thing. Why? Because we know committing to relationships is costly. It takes time. It takes energy. It's an investment of, of, of a lot of areas of capital, right? Most precious things I have is time. And beyond second to that is, is my relational capacity, right? And, and so to move intentionally into relationship with people eats both into my time and into to my ability to relate with others. Um, it just costs something, right? Some of you are really busy, Right? Some of you are like running a million miles an hour. you got 5,000 things going on. you got activities every night. You're, you're packed, right? Or maybe you tried it once and it wasn't so great. Maybe you moved into community and you tried to do it and, and it just didn't meet you where you were. Or Maybe you even tried a, a community group at Trailhead and for whatever reason, it didn't click. You didn't feel at home, so you kind of drifted off and, and stopped going. Here's the thing. If you're wondering if it's worth it, I'm going to tell you it is. But you need to move into community with a faith in God that he's going to work through community, even if it's hard. What that means is that your primary purpose for seeking out community can't be your needs. A little counterintuitive. If you're seeking out community just because you need community, it's going to disappoint you because you're going to have expectations. People are going to meet me here. People are going to serve me here. People are going to love me here. And when they come in here, you're going to be filled with disappointment and frustration. Your primary motivation for seeking out community can't be your need for community. Your primary purpose for seeking out community needs to be the glory of God. Honestly. I, I move into community. Why? Because God told me I'm supposed to. Right? He calls the church his body. Think about that metaphor, the body. What good is a part of the body without the rest of the body? Right? Think about the most valuable part of your body. Don't tell me what it is. I don't want to know, but it might be your heart. might be your brain, right? You're walking along and you find that piece of your body lying on the pavement. Do you go, oh, look, there's the most valuable part of my body. It's wonderful. No, you say, that's horrible. Why? Because it's disconnected from the rest of the body. It only has value in connection to the whole. God designed you for community. And so we seek out community to honor the God who wired us for community. Our primary purpose is to glorify the God who created us and is binding us together. Right? So I come in obedience and I come in expectation because I know that the God who wired for me for community is going to bless me through community, even if it's hard. So even when it disappoints me, I don't say, well, I tried it. It didn't work. I say, okay, God has something for me in that disappointment. God has something for me, even in the hard stuff. You're coming If you're, if you're coming for your primary need is, is your need. When your need isn't met, you'll run away. But if you're coming to glorify God, you're going to stick. And in sticking, what you're going to find is that God will meet you more deeply than you expected as you simply move in obedience and expectancy, right? We do it first for his glory and secondly, for my good. At some point, it's going to be hard. And I'll tell you why, because we're a bunch of broken people learning how to grow in grace and broken people have sharp edges. And at some point, that edge is going to hurt. Somebody's going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, or maybe not live up to your expectation, or maybe they're not going to say what you wanted them or needed them to say, or maybe they're going to say what you desperately hope they wouldn't say, and it's going to hurt. And in that moment, you're either going to run away or you're going to realize, okay, God has something for me in this, and you're going to stick. I'm telling you, you guys, the blessings of community uh, outweigh the cost of community. God has something for you in these relationships that far outweighs the cost of moving into these relationships. You can find a thousand excuses for not being in community, a thousand, and none of them are good enough. Not one. They're all excuses. Why? (laughs) Because nothing's more important than experiencing God's grace. And God's grace is primarily experienced through community. God's love is primarily experienced in relationship with the people of God. So we need to be moving into community. And it's going to be challenging. You know why? Because you have people that are very, very different moving into community with each other. We have people that are at all stages of their spiritual growth and development, brand new believers, right, who are wonderful in their excitement, but they're really rough around the edges, right? And then you have these super experienced believers who think they have it all together and know everything, right? You have some that are young, some that are old. You have, you have some that are of different backgrounds and cultural influences. We, th- in a group like this, I guarantee you, we have both liberal and conservative-leaning believers. right? So you're going to have some that get their primary news. Their primary news source is Fox News. Some of you, your primary news source is NPR. right? You're going to come at things from different angles. And you're going to sit down and try to have conversations. And you're going to be coming from different places. Some of you are going to think some things are so obvious that others of you are going to be like, you're just out of left field, right? So we're talking about differences in personality, differences in culture, differences in age, differences in experience, but there's a whole other realm of differences. When you start growing in the faith as a believer in Christ, you're going to start forming convictions about things, (laughs) about important things. And those convictions are going to differ from other people's convictions, right? I sit down with people and and, and I've sat down and and some people are like, man, I'll tell you what, man, I, I am all about the abortion issue. We need to be providing alternative places of solution for these women who are in crisis, right? We need to be engaging this and talking about it, moving, and they're right. I got other people who are coming, you know what, I, I'm, I'm all about the adoption issue. We've got these kids that are, they just don't have families. They're abandoned, they're broken, they're hurting, and all they need is a safe place. They need the love of Christ communicated through, through love, and they're right? I got other people coming in. They're like, man, I am all about right, racial reconciliation, man. We live in this broken world and especially in our region. It's being torn apart by, by racial uh, misunderstanding. And, and we need to move into this cultural surge that's, that's moving toward cultural and, and racial reconciliation. And the church should be at the forefront. And they're right. Some are more um, Bible and, and, and church oriented. They're like, man, we our passion... Should be evangelism. We should be out like every Saturday connecting with people that are far from God and sharing with them the gospel, the good news of how they can draw near. To, and they're they're right. This list goes on and on and on. But what ends up happening is when you put two people with very different passions in the same room hmm, with limited resources and limited time, you have conflict. I mean, let me give you an example. That's just areas of, of, um, of values. Think about areas where we have to decide personal behavior and expression, right? In a community like ours, we're going to each one have to come to certain conclusions about how our faith works out in, 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 our, in our lives. And we're going to come to different places of understanding in regard to our eating and our drinking, right? I can eat this. I can drink this. I can't. I won't. Uh, or or, or um, I think about it in connection with language right? Can we start with, with kind of a, a truism? Can we, can we basically all agree with language that not all language is perfectly appropriate in all situations at all times? Can we all start there? Not all language is perfectly appropriate in all situations at all times. I think we can all agree on that. And I think we're going to differ any time we try to move beyond that. I mean, the reality is this. If I were to take 10 conservative, Jesus-loving people and have them sit down and write out a list of their 10 no-no words there's probably going to be a little bit of overlap. There may not be any. Why? Why is there going to be so much diversity when it comes to, well, this is what I can say and what I can't say. And in this situation, I can use this language. And in that situation, I can use why? Because there are biblical principles that have to work their way out through cultural understanding. So we have to form convictions about what the Bible gives us the freedom or removes the freedom to do. We can't turn anywhere in the scripture and say, here's your list. It's not there. What we can do is is we can go and find principles in the Scripture, but we're going to end up falling in different places as we apply those principles. You guys think about this. What does this end up with? What it ends up with is there are plenty of places for us to get offended and to find conflict. Now, I want to make it very clear, there are some things in the Scripture that, that are very, very clear, right? Some things that are just not negotiable, right? When it says that Jesus rose from the dead that's not an area that we can disagree in the Christian community. Paul makes that very clear. He says, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, your faith is useless, right? We are of all people most to be pitied if you don't believe in, in the resurrection of Christ. That's, that's what we call a close-handed issue. It's primary. There are certain things that are so clear in Scripture that for us to be part of the Christian community, we need to agree on those things, right? It's not that you're, we reject you or don't love you if you don't agree with us. It just makes it very clear that you're not part of, of our faith. Our faith is defined by a core set of beliefs, right? There are things in the Bible called Ten Commandments, right? I don't know if you noticed that. Those aren't ten strong opinions, right? Th- those, aren't, those aren't ten maybe you should try this sometime. things, right? These are Ten Commandments. There are things in Scripture that are non-negotiable. There are things that are very, very clear. But there are many, many more things that we simply have to form convictions about based on biblical principles, things that aren't clear, but we need to find our way through. And because of that, what ends up happening in areas of personal behavior, um, in areas of, of doctrinal conviction, in areas of personal freedoms, we're going to fall in different places. And as we do, it's going to create opportunities for conflict because you're going to take people who have very, very different convictions, put them together and say, no and no, know each other, right? Love each other do life together. Here's the thing. Paul dealt with this all the time. Paul's the guy that traveled through the New Testament planting churches. This is not a new problem. This existed in the early church. And in fact, Romans 14 and 15 is Paul basically coaching the believers in Rome how, they, how to deal with these areas of conflict, how to deal with these areas of difference. So that's, that's my long introduction. And we're going to dig in and we're going to take a look at what was going on in Rome and how it applies to us. So take a look at Romans 14 Okay, and let's get our head around what's going on in this, uh, in this chapter. Romans 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. All right, we're finding that in, in Rome, he's highlighting specifically attention around two things about meat whether you should be a vegetarian or eat meat, that's issues of Christian behavior. And about a holy day, I think it's specifically about the Sabbath, whether or not you honor a specific day, which is really a conviction about doctrine. what I believe the Bible teaches, right? So you have a conflict about Christian behavior and you have a conflict around Christian belief. Um, Let's talk about the Christian behavior one. Why meat? What's the issue going on there? In Rome, Rome was a huge city filled with tons of pagan temples the meat market, the only place that you could pretty much get meat in Rome uh, was supplied by those pagan temples. And so those animals were used in pagan ritual sacrifices, some of them quite heinous, perverted, disgusting. Um, And I won't go into all the pagan practices of of ritual sacrifice, um, but they're pretty scary stuff. And after they were done with these animals, they would basically take the meat and send it to the meat market. So when you bought the meat, you were buying meat that was used in um, demonic worship. And the money you spend to buy the meat is actually going in directly to support pagan worship. So you had some people in the Christian community who were like, I'm hungry for steak. I like a good ribeye, and I have the freedom to eat it. So I'm going down to the meat market. I don't care what pagan temple it came from. God created the cow, the meat is good for food, praise God. You have other people who are basically like, you can't do that. First of all, it was, it was sacrificed in a demonic ritual. That makes the meat demonic. And secondly, the money you're spending is indirectly going to support these pagan temples. So, so you need to boycott that economic practice of actually letting your money be used for evil practices you see where this would be a source of conflict? So some people are like, no, I'm vegetarian, man. I don't eat meat because that, that, that dishonors God. Other people are like, no, God created it. It's all good. Right? What about this day of the week thing? When people became believers, um, especially in the early church, many of them came from a Jewish background. And in the Jewish background, the keeping of the Sabbath was one of the most sacred and, and culturally protected practices of their culture. That meant every Saturday. They basically, from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, they did no work. They basically prepared all their meals in advance. Um, they did all the work in advance so that on that day, in those 24 hours, um, they could just feast and rest and worship, right? That was kind of the goal of it. Uh, and they ended up making a thousand rules to protect Sabbath, um, which really got ridiculous. Uh, when, when the early church... Um, Uh, started practicing this, many of them moved it to Sunday because they said, well, Sunday is the day Jesus rose from the dead. And this is the new Sabbath. This is the Christian Sabbath. And many would take a 24-hour period on Sunday. Well, there were other people who basically said, look, the law has been fulfilled. We don't have to honor a day. We have to honor the spirit of Sabbath. We don't necessarily have to keep the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath is all about resting in the work of Jesus instead of performing for Jesus. It's all about believing in Jesus and trusting that he did for me what I can't do for him. And so every day I remind myself that I'm not working for God. Every day I remind myself I'm not performing to get God's acceptance. I'm instead resting in the acceptance I have because Jesus worked for me. They would say that's true Sabbath rest. And so you had some people keeping the day and some people not. Do you see how this can create conflict? What ends up happening in situations like this, you guys? Generally, what ends up happening is you start hanging out with people who think like you, that act like you, that have the same convictions as you. And pretty soon, you're creating these coalitions of us. We're the ones that keep the Sabbath. And them, those are the ones that don't. We're the ones who don't eat meat, they're the ones who do. And you know what's happening in that process? We're actually dismembering the body of Christ. We are are creating schisms. We're breaking up what is supposed to be unified because we're not dealing with conflict in a healthy way. What's Paul's advice? (laughs) It's actually a bit unexpected, right? Take a look at um, verse 5. Paul's advice. Second part of verse 5 says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. (laughs) All right, let's keep reading, but I want to come back to that because that's crazy. Um, The one who observes the day, observe it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eat in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. His first piece of advice for how to deal with conflict. Counterintuitive. Be fully convinced of your own position. Generally, when we're trying to create unity, what do we do? We emphasize what we have in common and we de-emphasize what we don't. Sometimes to the point of actually saying those things that we don't have in common, we don't even think about those things, right? It's really just about what we have in common because we want to create harmony, right? Some of you may have been in churches like that where their passion really was just to keep the peace. It was like their core value. The one core value was we will not break the peace. And so what ends up happening is there's a tremendous pressure on people, to simply focus on on the pieces we have in harmony, to not be the the squeaky wheel that's different. Paul's really different. Paul says, be fully convinced, not just kind of know, but be fully convinced about what your opinion is on these issues, these divisive issues. Why? Why would he advise us to develop strong opinions that differ from other people? Because the point of community, you guys, is not first about us. The point of community is not first about you having your needs met. The point of community is not first about you knowing and being known and loved and being loved. Those are important things, and and they're absolutely vital to your experience of the Christian faith, but they're not primary. What's primary? Being in Christ. You need to be fully convinced in your own mind. Why? Because your primary obligation is not to keep the peace, but to obey your God. You need to know what God is leading you to do. Otherwise, how will you walk in faith? He's saying, be fully convinced because ultimately you have an obligation as a Christ follower to follow Christ. And as you develop these convictions, you honor God by obeying the convictions. If you're unclear in what you think God wants you to do or believe, then sometimes you'll do something and sometimes you won't. And sometimes what ends up happening is, you know, you violate your conscience. There are times you do things, you're like, well, it's probably not wrong. So you do it, and then you're kind of struggling with, well, maybe it was wrong. I don't think it was wrong. Or, and, and your conscience condemns you. Take a look down at the end of chapter 14, where Paul describes this in verse 23. But whoever doubts is condemned if he eats. He's talking about the experience of your own conscience, right? If you don't think you're supposed to eat meat, or you're kind of quiet, or you're not really sure, you haven't really thought it through, but you do it anyway, you feel that sense of conviction. Your conscience kicks in. Why? Because the eating is not from faith. You're not doing it from obedience. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. I want you to catch this, you guys. There are some things that are sin for you that are not sin for me. And there are some things that are sin for me that are not sin for you. Why? Because I am responsible not to be like you, but to follow Jesus. And I may have personal convictions that differ from you. And my responsibility is not to be like you, it's to obey. There will be times when you simply do not have freedoms that other people have. Or there may be times when you feel like you have freedoms that other people don't have. That your conscience, informed by the Word of God, informed by, by prayer, I'm not talking about just abstractly deciding on your own, I'm talking about actually coming and, and, and letting the principles of the Word of God inform your decisions, your conclusions, your conclusions, will be different from others. And your responsibility is to follow Jesus. And some of you are like, Steve, I've been around people like that. People that were fully convinced about everything they, they thought, and they were really obnoxious. Right? Because everything they were convinced of, they were convinced everyone else also should be convinced of. You ever been around someone like that? Right? Every opinion is so strong, everyone else needs to hold that opinion. If you ever differ with them, it automatically leads to an argument. Right? Why? Because they're Right? they're so convinced, right? Here's the thing. And this is one of the dangers of of having strong opinions. When we have strong opinions, we are tempted to start thinking that we have the only right opinions. When we have strong opinions, we are tempted to think we have the only right opinions. And and that's actually allowing our, our opinion to be weakened by arrogance because your view of something may not be the only way to view it. Take a look at uh, chapter 14, verses 10 through 19. Starting in verse uh, 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we are all come before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat do not des- buy what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual. Upbuilding. See, when you have strong opinions, you start thinking that what you do or what you don't do is what makes you right. You start thinking what I believe or what I don't believe is the defining point of my rightness. See, it's hard to have strong convictions without growing self-righteous in those convictions. You ever experienced that? It's really hard to have strong convictions without becoming judgmental of people who think differently than you, people who come down at different places from you. See, Paul says have strong convictions, but don't get self-righteous in those convictions. And he highlights two forms of self-righteous judgment here, and I think you'll identify with one or the other. Take a look at verse 3. He says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. He echoes this in verse 10, where he says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Look, if you have a freedom that you you feel like God has given you in Christ, right? And you enjoy that freedom. Your temptation is to despise those who don't have that freedom. To look down on them as, as second class or, or less mature believers. I'm over here enjoying my frothy beverage and you over there cannot indulge in my freedom. I pity you. Right? There's this subtle heart attitude that comes in that basically says, you're just not there yet. You'll get there. You know, JV, it's okay. You're on the team. We all get to eventually. Come on. Why don't you have one? Right? I mean, that's really where it goes. We despise. When we have a freedom, we tend to despise those that don't have the freedom. If you don't have the freedom, you tend to get offended by the people who do. You tend to judge them. When you don't feel like you have a personal freedom, but you see somebody out in a public place doing what you don't have the freedom to do, your heart subtly says, that wicked, evil person. If they were, if they just were as sensitive as me, right, right? if they just had as much self-control as me, if they were just as, right, they're so worldly, right? We just, we find all these ways to, to judge them, right? If you're stronger, you, if you're stronger in your freedoms, your temptation is to despise those who aren't as strong. If you're weaker in your freedoms or you feel more um, constrictions, you become self-righteous in those constrictions and you judge people who exercise their freedoms. They're just worldly. They lack self-control, right? hmm <laughs> Paul makes it very clear. Be convinced in what you believe, whether you have freedom or, or whether you are constrained. But don't judge others by your convictions. Your responsibility is to obey God, your responsibility is not to become God over the life of others. Just because God has spoken to you and said, this is your freedom or this is your restraint does not mean you then need to become the voice of God in the lives of others. (laughs) Saying to them, you need to be like me. You need to have my convictions. You need to have my freedoms. You need to have my constrictions. We all stand before God. We all stand under God because he is our Lord. My brothers and sisters do not stand under my judgment. See, when I put them there, I'm putting myself in God's place. I'm making myself the authority of all things that God has not clearly defined. And that's an incredibly arrogant place for me to put myself. And it's deadly to my soul. It's deadly to community. It's deadly to others. And it is, it is deadly to my own soul. We need to stop trying to fix people, you guys. We need to stop being so arrogant that we think we, that everyone should have our same exact convictions or believe the same exact thing we believe on our pet doctrines. If God has given you a conviction, you need to hold it firmly. Um, but don't judge others by your personal conviction. If God's given you a freedom, exercise it to His glory, but do it in love. All right, I want you to catch something in this verse, in these chapters, you guys. Never once does Paul say somebody who is f- stronger in their freedoms is better than somebody who's weaker in their freedoms. He never exhorts the weaker brother or sister, hey man, why don't you get over your restrictions and move into your freedom? He doesn't say it. What he says is, if you feel constrained in your conscience, glorify God in that constraint. See, we sometimes put a value judgment on it and basically say, the one who's greater in the freedom somehow is greater in the kingdom. And we're all supposed to come to the same place where we can all indulge in the same freedoms in the same ways. And that's just not reality, and that is not the point of the chapter. He's not saying that that ultimately um, one is better than the other. But he does exhort those who have freedom. He doesn't exhort those who are constricted, other than to say, don't judge those who have freedom. But to those who have freedom, he says, Your freedom, make sure your freedom is in fact bound and limited by love, that you exercise your freedom with a primary concern of expressing love to others. Because if by your freedom, you destroy someone else, a weaker brother, somebody who's struggling, someone whose conscience is weak, and you come along, you're like, hey, you need to do this with me because we have freedom in Christ. and, And they end up acting in violation of their conscience. You are not in that moment acting in freedom in Christ. You are acting in sin because your freedom is not bound by love. Those of us who have freedoms, those of us who by grace feel like we have the freedom in whatever area, dress or language or food or drink or personal expression or whatever it is, need to realize that there are times to limit those freedoms for the good of others. There are times to hold back the expression of those freedoms to protect and to love others. That doesn't mean that the Christian community becomes defined by its weakest member. Just because you get offended by my freedom doesn't mean I need to limit it. There are a lot of people who get offended by my freedom, but that's actually an expression of their pride. I'm not actually endangering them to sin, right? They're not in danger of actually like violating their conscience. It's really just them trying to draw a circle of their own limitations and say the entire Christian community needs to live within this circle. Those people need to be offended, honestly. Offending them is the best thing you can do because it's an invitation to grace. But it does mean that our expression of freedom needs to be constrained and expressed in love, right? Even when we choose to offend someone, it needs to be done in love. Jesus did. You're like, man, how could you ever offend anybody in love? Read the Gospels. Jesus did it all the time. In love, he offended people who tried to draw the circle too tight to invite them out of their circle of self-righteousness and into the circle of grace. Our strength needs to be constrained and motivated by love. So what we're saying is this, on primary issues where Scripture is clear, we need to have unity and clarity. On issues where the Scripture is just clear, where God says, this is what you're supposed to do, this is, there's unity and clarity. On secondary issues, issues of conscience, there is diversity and grace. This only works, you guys, if you really understand what it means to be strong. One of the key misunderstandings that people have when they come to this passage is they assume the stronger brother or the stronger sister is the one who's walking in their freedom and the weaker brother or the weaker sister is the one who's not. And that is actually a misreading of the text. The stronger brother or stronger sister is not the one who's walking in their freedom. What makes them strong is not their freedom. You guys, There are people that are strong in their freedom, but they are weak in faith. They're strong in freedom, but they are weak in their experience of grace. They are weaker brothers and sisters because strength and weakness isn't primarily about our freedoms. It's primarily about our experience of faith. Take a look at 14.1 where it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. You guys, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our experience of, of our of having our hearts undone by the grace of God, experiencing God's love for us and having it free us to love God and and love others. As we grow in our experience of grace, we grow in our freedom. We will grow in our freedom. Why? Because the deeper the gospel works its way into our heart, the less we're driven by performance anxiety. Performance anxiety says, if I don't do the right things, I won't be loved in the right ways. You know, God loves me because Jesus did this, but now I better work hard to make sure he keeps loving me. That means you're, you're weak in your faith, honestly, because the gospel says you're unconditionally accepted. You're as loved as Jesus is loved, not because you earned it, but because he earned it for you. The message of the gospel of grace is a radical message where basically everything you've done wrong has been paid for by Christ. Your guilt and your shame was left on the cross and all of his righteousness is now yours as a free gift. And God sees you in Christ. And as you grow strong in that identity, you will become more free because you're not going to be motivated by fear. You're not going to be plagued by guilt. You're going to have the freedom of God's delight in you and over you and your delight in God as a response. That is growing strong in faith. Freedom, though, is the byproduct, not the substance of strength. Do you catch that? We have people. I've been there where I'm exercising all the freedoms of faith, but honestly, I'm incredibly weak in faith. I am a weaker brother. So how do you know if you're weak or strong? <laughs> how do you know if you're a weaker brother or a weaker sister or a, weak, a stronger brother or a, a stronger sister? And we're looking at this whole spectrum. <sighs> where do you place yourself? All right. I kind of came up with something to help us with that. We're going to go through some questions. And I, and I want to be upfront. This is not to condemn. This is to inform. Um, because I believe that the way we grow stronger in grace is first to see where we need grace. So here we go. All right. First of all, a weak believer walks in fear of losing God's love. Just talked about this a moment ago, right? You just, the gospel is is, you get it, but but you're having a hard time really getting it. You're having a hard time really believing it. So you're just walking along and, and you're really afraid that you just might screw it up. That you might just do the magic thing that loses God's love for you, right? Or, or you'll just like, like you know how it is? Like at the end of a, a long day where you think you've done all the right things, you kind of feel like, okay, now I feel like I deserve God's love. Like I can actually pray. And, and, and after you've sinned, you run away. Why? Because you you feel like, oh, I got to go beat myself up for a little while. You ever done that where you sin and then you go beat yourself up for a little while before you actually come back and pray to God? Why do you do that? Because you're actually trying to pay penance. You're trying to do the work of Jesus. You think if I can just suffer long enough, then I'll finally deserve to come back and receive grace. That's actually a misunderstanding of grace and it's a misunderstanding. We should, even in the middle of sin, be quick to run to grace. Our acceptance is not contingent on our performance. It's It's contingent on the performance of Christ. And the more we come to realize how broken we are, the more we come to realize how profound God's love for us is. A weak believer walks in fear of losing God's love, but a strong believer walks in confidence of God's love. Not because they've earned it, but because Christ has. Not because of their record, but because of Christ's record on their behalf. There's a confidence, a humble confidence, not an arrogance, a humble confidence, humble because they know they're broken, but confident because they know they're accepted and loved. So no matter how much they screw up, no matter how many times they mess up, they know the God of grace is walking with them, changing them, working even in all of the mess to change them to be like Jesus, right? There's a humble confidence to those who are strong in faith. A weak believer easily abuses God's love. See, a weak believer will take God's grace and use it as an excuse for sin. So a weak believer sometimes looks like a strong believer. They'll be like, oh, I have the freedom to do this. Why? Because Jesus died for me and I'm forgiven. But really what they're doing is using God's grace as an excuse to pursue their own self-centered sinful agenda. That is in fact a weak believer, if they're a believer at all. Honestly, there are people who use the grace of God who have never really believed in Jesus. Right? A strong believer, on the other hand, responds to and is changed by God's love. Right? They They know they're broken and they know they're sinful, but they know they're loved. And in being loved, it actually changes them, right? They actually come to love God more because of how God has loved them. They come to love others more because the overflow of God's love changes them. Grace has its proper outworking in our lives, and we actually become more responsive, right? There's no more powerful force of change than love. It's way more powerful than self-discipline way more powerful than, than personal conviction. When someone loves us, it changes us. Somebody who is strong, growing strong in faith is somebody who is being changed. They're responsive to the love of God. It's affecting them. A weak believer is easily and often offended. Why? Because there's a lot of people that step outside their line of acceptance. A weak believer is, is easily and often offended. Um, and so when you don't meet their needs, when you don't say the thing they thought you were supposed to say, or you say the thing that's off limits for them to say, or, or, or you know, you're not what they anticipated you would be, they're just offended, personally offended. And so they separate themselves. They become a little self-righteous in their heart. They judge you. Um, they are easily and often offended. A strong believer, on the other hand, is quick to give grace. Why? Because a strong believer knows how broken he is. He knows how sinful he is. And so he gives grace to other people in their sinfulness and brokenness. Right? When you let me down, it may hurt and it may disappoint me, but I'm not going to judge you and feel superior to you. Why? Because I don't I, I don't deserve that. I'm just as broken. Right? There's a humility that comes in that allows me to move in confidence that says I'm going to give you grace even though you didn't measure up. Instead of running quickly to personal offense, we run quickly to giving grace. All right. A weak believer gets offended on behalf of others and builds coalitions of offense. So a weak believer not only gets offended by his own personal slights, but he gets offended by all the slights everybody else um, is getting, or maybe they don't even get it, but they think they should. In other words, like I'm, I'm listening and, and um, the speaker says something, and I'm like, man, that person should be offended by what he just said. You know what I'm saying? That person should be offended. And you look over and you're like, I don't think they're offended. I don't think they got it. So I'm going to go tell them. I'm going to tell them they should be offended, but I'm not going to do it that bluntly. I'm going to be like, can you believe what he said? What did he say? Well, When he said, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. What do you think? Was that kind of offensive? Well, yeah, I guess if you put it that way. What are you doing at that point? You're building a coalition of offense. Why do you build coalitions of offense? Because you want people around you who are offended by the same things that offend you. It makes you feel strong. You love to have people around you that echo your own brokenness because it makes you feel like you're right. And when people echo to you, you're right. It only builds up and puffs up your self-righteousness. A strong believer seeks to work for reconciliation. So I see so-and-so did something that offends so-and-so. My first question isn't who is right. My first question is, how can I help bring grace and healing and blessing? See, a weak believer is always asking who's right. So when there's a crisis or a conflict or a marriage is breaking down or there's whatever, their their first question is, I wonder which side I'm on. A strong believer is always asking, how can I become an agent of reconciliation? How can I, in the grace of God, bring grace into this area of conflict? A weak believer will have the wrong conversations and avoid the right ones. (laughs) You know what I mean by have the wrong conversations? Like, so a weak believer gets offended they go talk to all the people that they know share their offense. That's the wrong conversation in the wrong way. Instead of talking to the person that actually offended them. Why? Because in talking to the person who actually offended them, they have to actually open themselves up to possibly being wrong. They have to ask questions instead of declare statements. Weak believers love to declare statements, right? Strong believers, on the other hand, will speak the truth in love. And by speak the truth, I don't mean they're showing up with all the right answers, but they're saying it in love. Like, I've got all the right answers and I love you enough to tell you, right? That, that's another mask for strength. That's another weak believer just showing up being a jerk under the guise of love. A strong believer actually shows up asking more questions than making statements. Like, they'll show up and they'll be like, hey, Steve, you know, when you said XYZ, did you mean ABC? And I'd be like, no, that's really not what I meant. What I meant was, see, what they do is they actually open up their opinions and their thoughts to challenge, to exposure. They're seeking truth. They're not declaring truth. And it's a personal offense. They, they are already giving grace to the other person because they're strong. They're giving grace and making positive assumptions about the other person. So they're showing up in grace, making positive assumptions about the other person, seeking reconciliation, asking questions. That's strength. Right? The next one, the weak believer values people based on their behaviors and convictions. Because the weak believer has a need to create coalitions, they love affinity. And what that means is they love to surround themselves with people that have the same convictions as them. And what they don't realize when they're doing that is they're actually um, devaluing and hurting people that are not like them. The weak believer values people based on their behaviors and convictions. Sometimes, like, let's say this is a doctrinal area. Somebody might have a pet doctrine. It's crazy how this happens, but it happens. Somebody will have a pet doctrine. And so one of the first things they try to do is find out where you stand on that doctrinal issue. right? You're in a conversation, and they're like, well, where do you stand on, I don't know, penal substitutionary atonement? right? Where do you stand? Do you, are, you, are you with federal or seminal headship? Which one are you on? Yeah, I mean, You're like, what are, is this Greek? What are you talking about? But for them, they've defined a true spiritual mature believer believes this. And what they want to find out is whether or not you're in their camp, right? A weak believer values people based on their behaviors and their convictions. They surround themselves with people who are like them. Strong believers value diversity. A strong believer values love for God and the grace of God. My first, a strong believer's first question when they're, when they're meeting with somebody is not, do you agree with all my pet doctrines? Their first question is, do you love the God I love? Are you undone by the grace that's undoing me and remaking me in beautiful ways? Are you following Jesus, the same Jesus I'm following? Right? A strong believer is more concerned with someone's passion and love for God and their growth and grace than they are with whether or not all their, their T's are crossed and I's dotted in the same way. All right, a weak believer, is there another one? Yeah. A weak believer uh, feels superior to others because of certain behaviors, freedoms, or doctrines. Kind of covered that. These become their points of pride. A strong believer uh, is humble. A strong believer doesn't um, define their worth by their peculiar or unique convictions. The next one, a, a weak believer tends to make issues of of uh, excuse me, a weak believer tends to make issues of strong convictions, core issues. In other words, they take their strong convictions and make them core issues. Because I have a strong opinion on this, you need to believe the same thing I believe. It becomes a core issue, a primary issue. So the primary question they're always asking is, do you agree with me? A strong believer isn't always trying to figure out who is in and who is out. Their primary question is, do you love God? Next one, a weak believer is quick to fill the gap with doubt, mistrust, and evil motives. Uh, You guys know what I mean by fill the gap? Every time you have an expectation of somebody and they don't meet that expectation, you have a gap and you have to fill it in with something. A weak believer fills that gap in with all the things you are afraid are true. So that person didn't meet me where I was. Why? Because they don't really love me. That person didn't say hi to me when I came in. Why? Because that person judges me and they don't, they don't accept me. Uh, that person wasn't there for me when I needed them. Why? Because they're really selfish and they're just using me. What they do is they take all of their insecurities, all of their fears, and they turn them into declarative statements that describe somebody and they attribute to them all the things that are evil in their own heart which may or may not be true, and most of the time isn't. But it completely changes the dynamic of the relationship because the next time you interact with them, you're negative. Why? Because they hurt you. And they did it from evil evil motives, and and they really didn't. And the next time they interact with you, they're hurt. And they're like, man, why is that person so rude to me? They don't even know what they did. Why? Because a weak believer doesn't even talk to them about it. (laughs) They have the wrong conversations with the wrong people at the wrong time. They don't have the right conversations. So they fill the gap with evil motives, with doubt, with mistrust. A strong believer, on the other hand, is quick to assume the best. A strong believer is quick to attribute good motives. Man, they weren't there for me. I wonder why. I wonder if something went wrong in their life. Man, they, they, they didn't say hi to me when I came in. I wonder why. I wonder if they were distracted, or I wonder if, if, if um, something's going on. You know, they, they didn't meet me in my need. I wonder if it's because they have a need I don't know about. Maybe I should find out. A strong believer assumes the best. And then actually goes and has the conversation to find out. Assuming the best, asking the right questions, moving in love, and working for grace and reconciliation. And guess what they get 99% of the time? Love, grace, and reconciliation. Reconciliation. Guess what the weak believer gets 99% of the time? Division. Separation of relationships. Hurt. If every relationship in your life is broken, look at the hub of the wheel. We need to grow in grace. We need to become strong in grace. You guys, I could go on and on with this list, but I think this is enough to draw two conclusions. First, We're all weak. Anybody coming out of this feeling strong? If you are, I'd like to meet you because your name is Jesus. Um, So the first thing I think we can conclude from this is that we're all weak, you guys. We're all weak, growing in strength. Every single one of us, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are weak, growing in strength. Let's just admit it. Let's not be afraid of it. Let's not posture and pretend to be something we're not. Let's be the broken mess we are that's being redeemed by the glorious work of Jesus. The second thing that this means is that any growth we make from weakness to strength happens through repentance. Repentance is the vehicle through which we grow strong. And by repentance, I don't mean beating ourselves up. I don't mean feeling bad about ourselves. What I mean is we reject the lie that's been driving and consuming us, and we embrace the truth that frees us. It frees us from having to build our own name, protect our own castle, have our own domain, build our own coalitions to make ourselves feel important. It frees us to be beautiful nobodies, broken messes, redeemed by the glory of God, where, where me, Huh? I'm really nothing important but Jesus, the one who loves me, the one who has covered me with this righteousness, the one who died for me and rose again for me, is everything. And he has marked me for glory because it's for his name and for my good. Humble confidence. We're all broken. We're all weak. And we all grow through the vehicle of repentance, which means we need community. Just bring the circle back around. How else are you going to grow through repentance unless you're doing it in relationship? When you become isolated, you separate yourselves from the very relationships that will push into your weakness that are opportunities for growth into strength. When we say community just costs too much, it's inconvenient, it's hard, and we pull away, what we're saying is my weakness is more important to me than the strength of grace that will come through the hardship of community. I would rather be insulated in my weakness and feel good in my self-righteousness than actually be inconvenienced and challenged and have to grow in community. And you're actually shutting yourself in to your own misery and closing yourself off to the greatest blessing of the gospel, which is the giving and receiving of love, the freedom of the human soul to become gloriously loved in God, where we are infinitely valuable because God loves us and infinitely nothing because of self-importance. We are absolutely glorious in him because he's glorious, but we have nothing to defend because it's his glory, not ours. Do you guys see the freedom, the beauty, the strength that comes from being strong in grace? We find that as we simply push into community. You guys, that's the vehicle God uses to push on our weaknesses and to call us to strength. So we walk in Christ as community. It is glorious. It is beautiful. It is hard. It is challenging. But it is the vehicle through which God grows us. We're going to move into a time of response. I'm going to put some questions up on the screen, ask you to pray um, create some space for you to do some business with God. I want to highlight the worship response card that's in your bulletins. If you, um, are new with us, if you're a guest, we would love for you to fill that out. We would love to know that you were here. There's response boxes up on the front tables and, um, you can drop in the basket by the door. Um, if you have prayer requests, write them down. We'd love to pray with you and for you. If you're a first time guest, we have a gift for you at connection point. Uh, just swing by. We just want to honor you for visiting. Um, and um, we'll be happy to answer any questions you have about who we are, what we're about. Um, so fill those out. All right, let's take a look at the response questions. We'll move into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. First of all, am I pursuing real Christian community or am I avoiding it? <laughs> and why? Right, seriously, look at your own heart. I mean, listen to the impulse of your own heart. Do you run toward Christian community or away from it? Are you, are you finding excuses not to be in Christian community? Are you finding excuses not to join a community group at Trailhead? Are you finding excuses, even if you're in a community group, to avoid actually committing yourself to it, to knowing and being known, to becoming vulnerable in relationship? Why? What are you afraid of? It's worth pulling out and asking and really examining it, right? Sometimes we let our motives hide behind our excuses. Well, I'm just too busy. mm you weren't too busy to get up this morning. You're not too busy to eat. We, we're always, you're never too busy to do the things that are most important to you. That's the reality. Why is this not important enough to you? Ask why. There's usually a fear. I'm afraid it'll cost too much. I'm afraid that, that it'll hurt too much. I'm afraid it'll be disappointing. I'm afraid it'll be inconvenient. I'm afraid that it'll be, that it'll be too demanding on my time. And then examine that in light of the promise. Because here's the thing. The promise of community far, far outweighs the cost of community. So let's ask why. Secondly, have I allowed my weakness to limit me instead of growing stronger in grace? Um, is there an area of your life right now where you've taken offense and you've grown self-righteous in your offense and you've become comfortable in that place of self-righteousness? It's really, it really is a comfortable seat to sit in. It's nice to sit over others and condemn them. Self-righteousness, man, there is, there is a pleasure in it. It's a life-draining pleasure, but there's a temporal pleasure. Have you become comfortable? And are you allowing that weakness to, to block you from actually moving into repentance and strength? Is there a conversation you need to have that you're avoiding having? Is there somebody you need to forgive that um, you have up to this point not wanted to forgive? Are you mistaking your weakness for your strength? If I forgive them, then what they did doesn't matter. And what I've accomplished in recovery doesn't matter. Are you, are you lying to yourself by, by thinking that if you forgive them, somehow that makes you weak instead of actually moving into the strength of grace? Are, are, you, are you believing a lie? Have you allowed your weakness to become so comfortable that it's limited your ability to move into strength? Thirdly, am I walking in love with those around me, helping them grow in grace? Am I using people around me or are I loving people around me? Am I, am I building community around me to meet my needs, to make me feel good about me? with all these expectations, of how they're going to perform for me? Or am I doing it really to love them? Asking first, not how can you love me, but how can I love you? Not asking first, how do you serve me, but asking how can I serve you? Are you actually learning to love people? And becoming kind of consumed with thinking how you can help people grow in grace. Instead of just being so self-absorbed and self-focused, how can I grow and what's to my benefit? Actually becoming excited about being used by God to help other people grow. Guys, listen to me. As we move into the freedom of grace, as we grow in strength, I'm telling you it unleashes the beauty and the power and the transformative glory of the gospel within you. Let's push into it. Let me pray for us. We'll go into a time of response. We'll share communion in a moment. Father God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and that even in saying that, that's kind of a, I don't know, an easy thing to say, what a profound truth, that your love for us came at an extreme cost to you, and in your your generosity and in your humility, you gladly paid that cost. You made yourself suffer. You entered into the inconvenience of our broken humanity, our sin, so that we could be invited into the comfort and the strength and the beauty of forgiveness and redemption and restoration, all that we have in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you will call our hearts to freedom. That you will call our hearts to grace. That we will learn to crave what truly gives life and stop running to empty cisterns, these these broken places that we keep turning to to give us water and they never satisfy. Father, meet us in our brokenness and call us to grace. Grant us the humble confidence of the gospel. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.